0: This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. A buyer trying to walk away from a deal found that it would have to take the cake, and more specifically, the company that makes the cake decorations. Kohlberg and company had attempted to back out of buying DecoPack, a cake decorating technology company, because of issues related to COVID-19. But after a trial in Delaware Chancery Court, the judge ordered Kohlberg to complete the deal and purchase the company. Joining me is Andrew Rossman, a partner at Quinn Emanuel, who represented the winning seller in the case. So, tell us about the deal.
1: So, my clients, No Phipps, the private equity firm, agreed to sell Decopack, a the leading manufacturer of cake decorating solutions in the country, in Anoka, Minnesota, uh, to another private equity firm called Kohlberg and Company. And they reached that agreement first week of March. And, you know, as the pandemic worsened, Kohlberg tried to get out of the deal. And we sued in Delaware to enforce it.
0: Was there one legal question or primary doctrine involved in the case?
1: Kohlberg raised several defenses, one of which is well known, which is a material adverse effect. And that was one of the things we argued about. Kohlberg asserted that the effects of the pandemic caused such a material change to the company that they should be able to get out of their obligation to buy it. That was one issue. And another issue was that Kohlberg allowed the financing for the deal to expire, um, actually precipitated, in our view, uh, caused a dispute with the lenders to make the financing go away. Um, And they claim then that without financing, they can't close the deal. And so, you know, one of the things that, you know, maybe the opinion is you know most significant for, you know, legal precedent is the prevention doctrine, which is the idea that you can't cause a condition to fail and then point to the failure of that condition as the reason to get out of your agreement.
0: So did the judge find that the buyer didn't just see the deal collapsing, but they tried to make the deal collapse?
1: Exactly. Instead of trying to find solutions and use their best efforts to get the deal closed, they did the opposite, which is they found problems and created problems with the lenders and then used those as excuses to get out of the deal.
0: So what is your understanding now after this decision of, of what the prevention doctrine stands for?
1: So what the prevention doctrine stands for is the idea that you can't create a problem. You can't manufacture a problem in your deal and then point to that problem as your exit from the deal. So in this case, they can't cause the financing to go away by creating a dispute with their lenders, and then cross their arms and say, we no longer have financing, therefore we don't have to close. It's an issue that's come up before where, in this, the famous case uh, involving a merger of uh, Huntsman and Hexion, where you know, one of the parties tried to get out of that deal by claiming that there would be an insolvency and therefore chased the lenders away.
0: So was the dispute mostly on the facts of the case? Were you arguing the facts of the case more or the law of the case?
1: I think the facts of the case were predominant here. Uh, the judge took an exhaustive review of the trial record and um, you know was persuaded that my client at every step was doing the right thing uh, and that Kohlberg at every step was trying to get out of its obligation.
0: Now, Kohlberg has to go through with the deal as originally agreed to.
1: The judge ordered Kohlberg to close the deal on its original Exactly.
0: So now, here you were on the seller side. But we talked sure. before when you were on the buyer side in another deal where the judge allowed your client to walk away from the deal. So tell us first, refresh our memory about that deal.
1: Sure. I've been involved in several of these uh, litigations, but two of them actually went to trial in the pandemic. One was a deal involving the sale of 15 luxury hotels by a Korean company called Mirai to a Chinese insurer called Anbang. In that case, we represented the buyer, right, and uh, persuaded the court that it was not obligated to close the deal in a trial decision that came out uh, towards the end of the year.
0: So what made the difference besides you being on the winning side <laughs> in these cases? What made the difference <laughs> in the opposite conclusions?
1: Yeah, well, th- thanks for that, June. But the, uh, the facts of every case stand by themselves, right? I think in both cases, the clients really were doing the right thing all along. I think they acted in good faith. They met their obligations. And it was not the case for the other side. So if you're the seller, we learned in the Murray case and the, and the Enbund case that you can't hide problems. You've got to disclose problems, and you've got to try to work through those. And you know the same thing uh, we learned in the Decopack case, which is you can't manufacture problems. So you know I think the lesson to take away from both of those is that parties are expected to be forthright and expected to, you know, act in good faith, respect their obligations. And that, you know, to me, it was easy because both clients were doing the right thing.
0: Andy, the judge in the latest case said it was a victory for deal certainty. Do you think that's true, even in light of the decision in the Murray case, which allowed your client to walk away from the deal?
1: I think the judge was very careful to apply the law, and I think the law was applied consistently, but the facts were quite different. And, you know, I take it as, uh, as you said, as a victory for deal certainty, I take it just as much as a victory for good faith, which is that, you know, parties are expected to, you know, meet their obligations earnestly and to have exchanges uh, with their counterparties that are candid. So that's how I, how I look at it. And I think the two decisions stand together well and um, you know, help provide uh, good guidance um, for parties who are engaged in these transactions.
0: Due to the pandemic, I imagine we're going to be seeing a lot of other cases on a large scale like this or on a smaller scale where people are trying to back out of a deal. What will make the difference?
1: Well, every, as I've seen in all of these, and I think we've done, you know, I've personally done six or eight of these cases at least. Um, not all of them go to trial. But every case requires not just an examination of the facts, but a close, uh, you know, close scrutiny of the contract itself. There are real differences in the contracts that make a difference. So, you know, in the case of, uh, you know, Murray, we were talking about hotels. Um, and the way that they were operated is quite dramatically different than we were talking about a cake decorating business um, and how, you know, that manufacturing distribution business uh, was operated is, you know, obviously quite different in, in the pandemic. And then you've got to scrutinize their contracts. So every case is uh, bespoke in that regard. And, and I'd say the other thing we learned soon is that um, often it's not what you think uh, that is going to be the issue that's in dispute. So, you know, parties look, you know, immediately everyone thinks about MAE, um, as the, you know, the main contract feature that determines whether or not you can exit a deal. Um, but both of these cases, when we spent time talking about MAE, they, there were other issues that were just as prominent or more prominent. And that's what I've seen throughout. Which is that parties often focus on other deal requirements, other conditions, um, and it's it's those things that they're pulling apart to test whether whether a deal is closed or not.
0: Do you think that contracts for deals going forward will contain will be will be um, formulated differently because of what lawyers learned during the pandemic? Are there going to be different clauses in there?
1: Without question um so you know we every time there is a financial crisis or there is a natural disaster you know you can you can look at what mae provisions are as you know sort of a, a history of the calamities of you know the last century or so because they keep adding new ones so you know now contracts uh you know will make direct reference to covid-19 um, you know, we're asked, you know, previously, uh, obviously, you know, before 2019, you know, no one could do that. Um and, and they'll be thinking more about, you know, all of these provisions as they get battle tested.
0: So the, the judge in this case wrote that perhaps there's a greater need to celebrate the milestones of life amidst the tragedy of a pandemic, or perhaps humans simply have an insatiable desire for decorated cakes. How did the pandemic, how did it hang over this trial? I mean, besides in the details that you were litigating, how else did the pandemic have an effect?
1: Well, it had an effect in a number of ways. Obviously, in real time, we're seeing the impact on the company and our, our thesis throughout, you know, the company's thesis throughout, which was very much sustained is that after a short term, you know, dip, people are going to get back uh, to buying cakes. They may not get together in the same numbers as they previously did, but, you know, on, on, you know, Jimmy's fifth birthday, Jimmy's going to get a cake. And, you know, that very much proved to be true as we've all experienced. Uh, in the pandemic, we just found different ways to celebrate. Um, and it also affected the way we tried the case. Uh, you know, we, uh, initially we asked the judge to uh, set us down for trial in two weeks so that we could be heard before the financing expired. And I think, you know, in a, in a very, I didn't like it at the time, but in a very, uh, sensible, humane decision, the judge, you know, felt like that was not, uh, a practical thing to do. In the pandemic. Um, and then, you know, we, we went ahead and had a, an expedited trial, but on a more uh, understandable schedule. Uh, and we did everything remotely. Uh, you know, no one was in the room together. We did the trial remotely on Zoom. We did all the depositions on Zoom. It was quite a different experience uh, than we've had before for lawyers, as, you know, as well as the participants.
0: So trial lawyers like to be in court, but are you going to miss when the pandemic is hopefully behind us, are you going to miss the convenience of Zoom?
1: Well, there, there is something special about, you know, being able to, uh, you know, just walk down uh, stairs in your house, you know, into the courtroom, so to speak. And, you know, it saves a lot of wear and tear on travel, but I miss being in courtrooms. I miss being with my trial teams and my clients. I miss, you know, having judges you know, frown at me in person uh, or, you know, hopefully <laughs> smile. Um, I, I miss the human element of, of uh, litigation very much.
0: Thanks so much for being on the Bloomberg Law Show, Andy. That's Andrew Rossman, a partner at Quinn Emanuel. As the Supreme Court waded into the war on drugs this week, there was an unusually lopsided set of litigants, so lopsided that the court had to appoint an outside lawyer to argue to uphold the law at issue after the Biden administration switched sides and backed the defendant. The question was whether the lowest-level drug offenders are eligible for retroactive relief under the First Step Act and can seek resentencing. Lawmakers from both parties, both conservative and liberal groups, and the Biden administration say Congress intended for the law to encompass low-level offenders. But many of the justices sounded skeptical that the statutory language would allow that interpretation. Here are justices Stephen Breyer and Brett Kavanaugh.
1: I mean, I think they were much
0: too high. I understand that. But I can't get away from this statute. Why didn't Congress just say everyone who's been sentenced for crack offenses under 841... Is eligible for resentencing. Something simple like that. Joining me is Mark Osler, a professor at the University of Saint Thomas School of Law, who specializes in sentencing policy. So, Mark, tell us a little bit about the First Step Act.
2: Sure. The First Step Act that was passed in 2018. It had a number of provisions. Um, it was it was created new metrics of data within the Bureau of Prisons. It um, enhanced some reentry provisions. But one of the primary things that it did was make retroactive, a prior law, uh, the Fair Sentencing Act in 2010. And what that did was change the 100 to 1 ratio between powder and crack cocaine. In other words, in both the sentencing guidelines and the statutes that created mandatory minimums, you were sentenced the same for 5 grams of crack as you were for 500 grams of powder cocaine this had really disparate impacts uh, in terms of race. And I was a federal prosecutor in the 1990s in Detroit. There were a lot of crack cases coming through that office. And, of course, it was all or almost all um, black defendants in those cases. And in time, that became noticed. And in 2010, they changed the law, but they didn't make it retroactive. And that was a continuing problem because you had people who were sentenced under the old law who uh, didn't have the advantage of the the change in attitude and the the adjustment that had been made. And that festered for a long time. You know, the Obama administration wasn't able to fix it. And eventually there was a bipartisan movement in uh, Congress that pushed for that change among others. And it came through in the first step act of 2018 that was signed by Donald Trump. Um, You know, notably (laughs) The name indicated it was supposed to be one of a series of bills, but it was the only one to got through.
0: What is the issue in this case before the Supreme Court?
2: Yeah, it's a little bit complicated, but the original law, the mandatory minimum that regards crack and a number of other drugs, it sets three different tiers. And, you know, the top tier previously was over 50 grams of crack for the top tier, and over five grams of crack for the middle tier, and then the bottom tier was under five grams of crack. And then those thresholds all went up under the Fair Sentencing Act in 2010, and that's what the First Step Act made retroactive. And so, in other words, people could go back and say, I want to be resentenced under the current law. And that meant that, let's say, if you had been sentenced under the top tier for you know, 60 grams of crack, now you're not meeting that threshold. And so they could be resentenced. Now, the problem was that the First Step Act said explicitly that it applied to sentences and mandatory minimums that have been modified by the Fair Sentencing Act. And the argument from the government under the Trump administration was that that meant that the top two tiers— which had been changed explicitly because the, upper, the threshold had been raised, uh, that people who had been sentenced under those got relief. But people for whom they weren't charged with a threshold of over five grams of crack, that they didn't have the benefit of this change. That's an argument that doesn't make much sense in terms of policy, why you would give relief to people that were more culpable, but not people who are less culpable, But that's what is at the heart of this is the 11th Circuit upheld a decision below that Mr. Terry, the petitioner, did not have the ability to have his sentence reviewed under the First Step Act because he wasn't in those top two tiers, but rather was charged with no amount listed.
0: On the date when the government's main brief in the case was due, the Biden administration informed the court that it was changing positions from the Trump administration. And now siding with the defendant in the case. So the court appointed an outside lawyer to argue the case against the defendant and the reduced sentence. Why did the Biden administration change positions at the last minute? I think
2: that they had, yeah, I think that they had pressure from reformers, certainly, that they should do so. That there were a number of people, including myself, who had taken up these first step back cases pro bono and it had noticed the problems with them. And frankly, it was inconsistent with the very bipartisan spirit that was behind the First Step Act in the first place. And, you know, even before they had everybody on board at DOJ with the incoming nominees, they did switch sides, and the Supreme Court appointed someone to represent the other side now that the DOJ had abandoned that position.
0: So now at the Supreme Court arguments... Was there a lot of discussion of the intent of the act, or was it based more on the language, the statutory language?
2: Well, both things. And, you know, the political setup for the for all of this was underneath the arguments, of course. You know, one thing that fascinates me about this, especially in our current political climate, is that there was an amicus brief that was submitted in support of the First Step Act applying to Mr. Terry that was submitted by four senators, Durbin, Booker, Grassley, and Senator Mike Lee. Now, that's a pretty incredible lineup if you think about it. I mean, from one end of the ideological spectrum to the other. And it really reflects the bipartisan consensus that was behind the First Step Act in the first place. And, you know, of course, in that argument, the justices were interested both in what the intent was, but also, you know, what injustices does this create? And underneath it all is you look at what Mr. Terry was sentenced to, 15 and a half years in prison for four grams of crack. It's shocking. And is something, you know, I'll tell you, I'm talking to you right now from downtown Minneapolis. I'm looking down over Nicolette Mall. I'm about a mile away from where Derek Chauvin, the police officer who killed George Floyd, is going to be sentenced shortly. And most people are saying that what he'll get for that cold blooded killing that America saw is going to be about fifteen years. And that that's the same as Mr. Terry got for having the four grams of crack.
0: Some of the justices seemed sympathetic to Terry's plight, to his sentence being excessive, but for example, Justice Breyer said I can't get away from this statute. And even Justice Sonia Sotomayor, who is considered one of the justices who is more sympathetic to criminal defendants, even she seemed to indicate that you just can't get around the words of the statute.
2: Yeah. And I'm hoping that, you know, the argument will prevail in these, that, you know, what's in the statute is is modified. And what of you know, the parties, and this was something that the senator said was their intent, was that that means something different than amended, because obviously Tier 2 and Tier 3, the upper two tiers, were specifically amended. But that also modifies that bottom tier by raising the level from 5 grams to, to 28 grams, I think it was. And that is that's the, you know, probably the best argument going to the statutory language. One thing about about Justice Breyer is that his history in sentencing is complicated. That it's it's one where he's been he was on the sentencing commission that drafted the original sentencing guidelines that were mandatory. That in the Booker decision he argued that that there should they should not be converted to being an advisory. So he's somebody who has a complicated history with these issues, and the fact that you know, he was sticking to the language of the statute, is, is really in keeping with some of his prior jurisprudence in this area.
0: During the oral arguments, did any of the justices seem inclined to adopt that argument? It seemed that most of the justices thought the statutory language was a problem for Terry and wouldn't support a retroactive interpretation.
2: Yeah, and, you know, that, of course, reflects the circuit split that they were presented with, that four of the circuits had, you know, been on the side that the 11th Circuit was, that this new law did not apply to Mr. Terry, and there were, I believe, two circuits had held that he would have. So, you know, the lay of the land was in favor of that, that reading of the statute.
0: Were there any questions from the textualists on the court which which indicated which way they might go?
2: You know, I don't recall specifically if there were, but, you know, even if you are a textualist, that that question of is modified different than amend is something to take seriously.
0: So will you explain the modify versus amend argument?
2: Yeah, well, there's no question that if the statute had said amended, those portions that were amended, they would only apply to the top two tiers because it, it changed Thresholds that had to be met for them to apply to enhance a crack sense. Uh, however, it did also modify, even though it didn't expressly amend the bottom tier. It did modify or change that bottom tier because uh, it was it was expanded, basically from five to 28 grams. So that's you know that's that's going to be the distinction that they'll be talking about in conference.
0: I'm curious. I don't know if you know the answer to this. Terry is about to to be finished serving his sentence. So, is it just that this case took that long to get through the system?
2: Well, there's a couple things. He's on home confinement right now, and he'll be done in September, I believe. Uh, and it, it, you know, it could be just this is the case that got up to the Supreme Court to resolve the issue. Um, you know, it's it's not moot. <laughs> uh, and, you know, the fact that he's on home confinement is a function of, of the COVID uh, pandemic, where under the Trump administration and under the Biden administration, many people who are towards the end of their sentence are being switched over to, to home confinement. But, you know, one thing is people will say, you know, that's, we're talking about, about you know, three or four months. <laughs> that, that matters. You know, if you think back in your own life of the past three or four months, if they were just gone, you know if you had been in prison for that period of time, that would matter and, and too often we discount the the value of time when it's a, a smaller button of time on top of the larger sentence
0: I have to say this seems like such a technical argument
2: you know you've got the the sentencing guideline book that's you know inches thick that is like a tax code at this point, and that's part of the problem part of the problem is is that complexity, the tears and those things, they become normative. You know, when we say that the that <laughs> the right sentence for five grams of crack is five years, that becomes normative. It sounds scientific. But that masks crazy realities. You know, that someone for four grams of crack got 15 and a half years, that, that's irrational. No one was being denied crack by the fact that this one person who is selling is is out of commission, Um, and yet we're taking on the societal costs of that imprisonment. Um, Yeah, so that complexity, that technicality of it, um, yeah, that does bar people from digging into it, but once we do, we find that really ugly reality.
0: When judges had more discretion, there was a problem with judges having discretion, too. People were upset that some judges were giving sentences that were out of the ballpark, so where's the happy right. medium?
2: Yeah, and that's what we're that's what we're trying to find, is that happy medium between judges having so much discretion that bias comes into play, and, and you have incredibly disparate sentences, and where uh, we don't have these mandatory laws that bind judges and, and create these, frankly, pretty ridiculous sentences, as we saw for, for Mr. Terry in, in this case. You know, there's been a... a Back and forth, over decades, between uniformity and discretion for judges. It's like watching a ball roll back and forth in a cup. And at some point, it's going to have to come to an equilibrium. And this case is a part of that.
0: If the court decides against Mr. Terry, does that just leave everything in place as it was before?
2: It'll leave everything else in place. So the other two tiers will be unaffected. Um, And, you know, those people who are doing longer terms under this are going to have to pursue other avenues, for example, clemency. One would hope that if the Biden uh, administration loses this case, that their reaction will be to identify those people like Mr. Terry and let them out under the power of clemency.
0: Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show. That's Professor Mark Osler of the University of St. Thomas School of Law. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg.